you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12. In his most recent book, Kevin Eidelman says, Imagine a man who has been coughing constantly. This cough keeps him up half the night and interrupts any conversation he has that lasts more than a minute or two. The cough is so unrelenting that he goes to the doctor. The doctor runs his tests and it's lung cancer. Now imagine the doctor knows how tough the news will be to handle. So he doesn't tell his patient about cancer. Instead, he writes a prescription for some strong cough medicine and tells him that he should be feeling better soon. The man is delighted with this prognosis, and sure enough, he sleeps much better that night. The cough syrup seems to have solved his problem. Meanwhile, very quietly, the cancer is eating away at his body. Every day, you and I wake up and very quickly begin coughing. Someday that coughing may seem like an occasional clearing of the throat. Other days it might be a wet, hacking, persistent barking. But it's not a literal cough, it's sin. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Every day we face sin. Sometimes it seems like it's small and it's easy to deal with. Other times it seems seemingly unstoppable. A behavior that will surely weigh us down and drag us to hell. And we may be tempted. In fact, I would say probably every day we are tempted to deal with the symptom rather than the heart of the problem. We are tempted to treat our sin like cancer by simply ingesting the cough syrup again and again and again. But the Bible says that the heart of our problem with sin, the very essence of our failure to believe and to live as God wants, comes down to one thing, namely our worship. Our worship. In the deepest part of our heart, we daily experience the turmoil of God's at war. Every day, turmoil erupts as numerous idols fight for allegiance and reign over our affections. Idolatry doesn't mean that we necessarily look at some object and think, this is my God, and bow down and worship it. But it does mean that that object, whatever it is, maintains a place of ultimate importance in our life. It drives us to live how we live, and we cannot imagine life without it. And this battle is not something we're ever going to get over. It's not a sin that we mature beyond because idolatry lies at the heart of every sin. When God is not God in your life, something else is going to be God in your life. Someone or something is sitting on the throne of your heart, directing your life, receiving the offerings of your time and your money, existing as the object of your worship. And the Bible is clear that as people made in the image of God, humanity was designed to know and to worship God, to live in relationship with Him. But from the very beginning, we have refused that role for Him in our life. Paul says earlier in this book, in chapter 1, that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. The reality is this, whether we know it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, whether we are an atheist and say there is no God, all of us worship something. So who is that person? What is that thing that we worship? Anything other than the one true and living God is an idol according to the Bible. Over the last five weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians 6. We've been thinking about the essential elements of spiritual warfare. And for the remaining three weeks in this series, we now want to take that 
that basic foundational teaching and apply it to three key areas of our life to see how spiritual warfare is not just an abstraction but how it works out in our day-to-day living and we begin with this central concern the worship of our life if we have rightly understood what spiritual warfare is then we will know that the basic daily most fundamental battle we will ever face is this toppling over the idols that are in our heart So the question is, how can we do that? How can we give real worship to the one true and living God? That's what we want to look at this morning. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This morning, from these two verses, we want to see two things. First of all, what real worship looks like. And then secondly, how real worship is achieved. Paul is going to say this is the standard for our life. This is how and who we should be worshiping. But he doesn't just leave us there knowing that that we have failed to attain that. He will tell us, here's how you go about worshiping in that way. Verse 1 and verse 2. So let's first see what real worship looks like. What real worship looks like in verse 1. As we begin, perhaps we need to explain even what the concept of worship is. Uh, too often we think about singing or we think about church, we think about what we're doing right now, and we think, oh, that's worship. But biblically speaking, it's more than that. It's about making something look glorious, about giving it honor. It is about our commitment to this thing or this person, sacrificing our time and our resources to make much of it or him, exalting it and showing its gratefulness. And what we'll see in, uh, or, or its greatness And what we'll see in a minute is that that's not confined to just what happens in a religious service. That spreads to all of life. And the Bible is clear, Paul is clear, even in this book of Romans, that only God deserves that place of prominence in our life. Only God is worthy of our worship. First of all, because he made us. From the dust of the earth, he created us in his image and gave us life. But more than that, as God's people, he's redeemed us. He's created us from the dust of the ground and he has redeemed us from the sin of our hearts. And for those two things, from the mercy that God has shown to us, he didn't have to create us, he didn't have to save us, but he's done these things. They become the basis and the foundation for the rationale for us to worship him. And so in this way, we see that real worship begins with the mercy of God. Real worship begins with the mercy of God. These two verses form really a a pivotal turn in the book because Paul up to this point in chapters 1 through 11 has been essentially teaching the theology of the mercies of God to the Roman Christians as he's writing to them. He is reminding them of the things that they already know, but he is taking them deeper into those realities. And now he is about to make a switch. He's about to make a turn and say, now here is how we live in light of these things. This is the difference that our lives that should be seen in our lives based upon these realities. So what has he been telling them? In chapter 1, he has talked about the power of the gospel to save all people. And he has explained that All people need to be saved because of the fundamental sin that we have and a failure to worship God. Also in chapter 1 that we already read about. 
He has talked about God's righteous wrath against sinners in chapters 1 through 3 and how Jews and Gentiles both are condemned under that wrath for their sin. He has talked about the saving work of God through the ages, chapters 3 and 4, and the culmination of that work in the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings that come to us through faith in Him. He has also shown the plan of God's salvation not only for Israel, but for the rest of the world, chapters 9 through 11. And now Paul says, based on these mercies of God, here is how you should live. Your life should be lived in worship, total, all-consuming worship to this God. By the mercies of God, present your body as a sacrifice, as reasonable service and worship to him. Why is it so important that he begin with God's mercy? The truth is, if we don't begin with God's mercy, if we don't start with what God has done for us, then our worship will not be worship, it will be work. It will be us grasping and trying and, and sacrificing that God might love us, that God might save us, that God might bless us. And Paul says that's the exact opposite of the order of that, that we see things in the Bible. Because God has shown us mercy, because He has loved us, because He has saved us, we should worship Him. Our, 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 our service and worship to Him is not meant to bring down blessings from heaven. It is in response to the blessings that we have already received from heaven. And so if we do not understand that we must start with the mercies of God as our motivation for worship, then we're going to be either really confused in trying to worship God or really resentful of God. Paul says it is by the great mercies of God that we truly worship Him. But what does that worship look like? He tells us that worship is seen in sacrifice to God. Worship is seen in sacrifice to God, specifically the sacrifice of ourselves. He says again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Imagine just for a moment the context in which Paul is writing. Imagine being in the first century in Rome as you walk down the streets or perhaps ride on a donkey going to the marketplace. You see on every corner possible temples. Shrines, and you see people going in with their offerings. You see them going and giving over food or giving over an animal. You see them paying tribute. You see them giving uh, coins in the reception box. You see some of them going in to literally prostitute themselves and so-called worship to the gods. In every way possible, they are giving sacrifices. Why? Because the gods in their mind are stingy and withhold blessings, and freely give out wrath. And therefore, the more that we worship them, the more that we give them, the more that we sacrifice for them, we will, we will in a sense, beg them to open their hands and drop some blessing upon us, whether with our marriage, whether with our health, perhaps with our business. And in the midst of all of that, Paul says, don't go offer some animal. Don't go offer some food or some grain or some money. God wants you. Offer yourself. You be the sacrifice. He doesn't mean offer yourself in the same way that Christ offered himself. He's already made it clear in the opening chapters that Christ's sacrifice was complete in bringing us to God. There is no more sin to be atoned for. No more guilt to be expiated. His work is finished. And our response is to trust him, to believe in that sacrifice. So Paul is saying here, essentially what he says in 1 Corinthians... Remember, 
as God's people, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. If you have trusted in Christ, everything that you do and think and say is meant to be done and thought and said as an act of worship to God. Again, worship is not just about this. Properly speaking, this is gathered worship or corporate worship. This is a special time when we come together as God's people and worship God. But that doesn't mean that when we give the benediction and we walk out the door that suddenly we've stopped worshiping. It goes on from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed at night. What is driving you? What is motivating you? What is the thing that you are thinking about when your mind wanders from its duty? The thing that you love the most, the thing that you think I cannot do without, that is the thing that you are worshiping. And the question is, is that going to be God or not? And if it is God, then how do we do that? And Paul says, we do it with everything that we are. The totality of our life is meant to be worshiped to God. Specifically, he says that it is to be a sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable to God. It's living in this sense. It's not a one-time event. If you were to go to the pagan uh, temples or even the temple of Judaism and you were to offer the sacrifice, you slit the animal's throat once, you burn it up, and it's done. The sacrifice has been offered. It's a dead sacrifice. And Paul says, you're not going to be like that. The sacrifice of your bodies, the worship of your life is a living sacrifice. That means it goes on as long as you live. So are you sucking in breath? Then you are to be worshiping God. In part because it's his breath. He's given it to you, right? It's a gift from his hand. That means that there's no excuse either for the circumstances of your life to say, well, but surely God understands. No, because you can worship God with all of your might, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, whether it is actively serving him on the mission field or faithfully dying in a bed with cancer. Both can be equally worshipful to God if you're doing it by faith in him if you're doing it in a way that your eyes are looking to him in trust, in contentment, in joy of the salvation you have in Christ. So it's not a matter of what our occupation is or who our family is or what activity we're involved in. It is an ongoing living sacrifice of worship that God expects. More than that, he says it's to be a holy sacrifice. Holiness certainly has a moral quality, but it's more than that. It is being set apart from the world and dedicated to service to God. So as is already mentioned in chapter 6, we are not to live for the sake of sinful deeds. We're not to live with our bodies just doing whatever we want. We are to live in such a way that our bodies are instruments of holiness, of righteous deeds that honor God. Finally, he says that our lives are to be offered as a sacrifice that is acceptable or well-pleasing to God. Paul is, again, just making sure that our orientation is right. That, yes, we are to be a living sacrifice. We are to be a holy sacrifice. But remember, it is toward God. So we don't get to define what holiness looks like. We don't get to define what sacrifice looks like. It must be acceptable and pleasing to him. He is the one that determines what is acceptable worship. Thus, in his book on basic Christian theology, John Calvin says this, We are not our own. Therefore, let not our reason nor our will sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. And so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. 
Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We belong to him. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We belong to God. Let all the parts of our lives accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Calvin just summarized what Paul is saying here in all of its implications. This is what real worship looks like. But I don't think any one of us would be able to say this morning, at least I can't, oh, this is easy. I got this. No problem. Worship in the bag. What's next? It, it doesn't work that way. Because, because Paul is saying that to truly worship God, it means that everything that, that we are in our humanness, in our fallenness, is put to death and we're now living in totality for God. It's not an easy thing, but Paul shows us how we go about doing it. Paul shows us how we are able to go about worshiping the living God the way that we are called to. This is the second thing that we see. We not only saw what, what, what real worship is, but now we see how real worship is achieved. How real worship is achieved. He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here we see two commands and one result of following those commands. First, he says that we should worship by resisting worldly conformity. We should worship by resisting worldly conformity. Do not be conformed to this world. Again, easier said than done because the world is constantly bombarding you with the message to conform. One of the, the funniest comments I think I ever heard out of anybody's mouth. Someone, this was years and years ago. Uh, someone was, uh, it was a high school girl, and she was uh, dressed in, in uh, what we typically call goth, all black, uh, you know, uh, powdered skin to make it look white, uh, raven black hair, uh, black eyelashes, just the, the whole bit. And someone was interviewing her and saying, why do you dress like that? And she says, because I want to be different while behind her stands 50 other people dressed like goth. I don't think the irony uh, was caught by her. Even in trying to be different, we are simply following the world's definition of difference. There's no way in which we're really encouraged to be unique in society. It's always unique according to society's standards, society's norms. But more than that, there is sinful ways as well that we are encouraged to live for ourselves, to do what we want to do, to think of ourselves first. And if you really feel bad about that, then you give a couple bucks to charity and it makes you feel better. I've been a nice guy. I've, I've done something nice. As if that will somehow counterbalance uh, the, the, the totality of selfishness that is being pushed on us as a worldview. Commercials used to be about the product. This is why you should get this product. Because it works well, it will last long, and it's worth your money. Now, it's you should buy this because you deserve it. You deserve this product. Really? The Bible says I deserve hell. I'm not sure I deserve that product. If I have the money and it's useful, sure, go ahead and buy. I'm not saying don't buy things. The point is, the world is seeking to conform us, to squeeze us into its shape and its mold. And the mold is this, a life apart from God. That is the essence of the culture in which we swim. It is a way of viewing life, of thinking about the world, about how we live apart from God. And Paul says in the midst of that, don't conform. 
Don't, don't allow yourself to be controlled by the culture around you. Don't make society's morality and values your morality and values. Don't allow the thoughts, the prevailing thoughts that are dominant in society be acceptable to you. Real worship comes in resisting conformity to this world. What does that look like in everyday life though? What kinds of things is he talking about? <clears throat> well, consider some of the commandments that come later in this chapter. Paul has begun by saying, worship God with your life. And now the rest of this chapter, in fact, the rest of the book is showing you, here's what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. Consider some of the examples that he gives. Verse 8, do mercy with cheerfulness. Don't begrudge helping somebody else as you show mercy. Rejoice in helping them. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Don't put on a smile, but be thinking, I really don't want to be here. I care nothing about you. I'm just doing this because I have to. Let love be genuine. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Don't hoard what you have or worry about making sure you've got a nice little nest egg. Help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Care for God's people. He goes on, bless those who persecute you. Weep with those who weep. Associate with the lowly. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do you hear how countercultural that is? I defy you, go and find me a movie or a book that is popularly accepted that advocates that as a normal lifestyle in America. You'll never find it. You'll never find it because, in fact, it's the opposite. Don't take care of your enemies, just your friends. Always avenge yourself. Make sure that you right the wrongs that you think have been done to you. Always repay evil for evil. Don't associate with the lowly. Find someone who is great in society and be their friend because they will bring you up. And on and on and on. And Paul is saying, that's not what, that's not, that's not what Christians do. Christians don't conform to the world's standards. Christians don't conform to the world's ideas. We don't conform. Instead, we are seeking to be transformed. We are seeking to be transformed. That's the second thing that he says. Worship by seeking inward transformation. Worship by seeking inward transformation. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here we get a corrective to the common failure of, of much of Christian thinking. When we hear the command to not conform, we should rightly think about lifestyle and behavior, but we shouldn't stop there. We need to go deeper than that. We must go deeper because we are more than simply what we do. Worship is about more than simply avoiding certain behaviors. It is that, but it's more than that as well. Consider St. Jerome. He lived around 400 AD and wanted holiness. He wanted to be able to conquer his sins. So he left the morally debauched cesspool of the cities in which he lived and he moved out to the remote deserts of Syria. He denied himself pleasures and worldly activity thinking that would lead him to holiness and the right worship of God. But listen to what he says as he describes what happened to himself. Jerome says, How often when I was living in the desert in that lonely way, scorched by the burning sun, how often did I fancy myself among the pleasures of Rome? Though in my fear of hell I consigned myself to that prison where my only companions were scorpions and wild beasts, I often imagined myself surrounded by dancing girls. My face was pale with fasting. My limbs were cold as ice, but my mind was burning with desire. 
and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me while my body was good as dead. Helpless, I cast myself at the feet of Jesus. Do you you understand what he's saying there? It's possible to sin with the body, but sin doesn't begin with the body. Sin starts much deeper than that. Sin starts in the heart. So that even when he is physically incapable of enjoying the world's pleasures that he finds sinful and God rightly condemns as sinful, his mind is still alive with desire and lust and sinful longings for those things. They are still the idols of his heart. And so it's about more than simply replacing one activity of behaviors with another activity of behaviors. It's not simply saying, I'm not going to smoke, drink, or chew and go with girls that do. I'm going to do something else. It's got to be more than that. Paul says it is an inward transformation. The Christian alternative to immoral behavior is not a new list of moral behaviors. It's about the work of God's Spirit cleansing us from sin, purging us from sinful desires, and creating within us new desires, new affections for God and His glory. And notice how Paul says this begins. It starts with the mind. It starts with the mind. That we might be renewed with our mind. Why does he start there? Because this. Right thinking leads to right desiring which leads to right living. So how we think about the world, what is good and right and holy and what is wrong and sinful and hell-bound, that informs the things that we desire. So if we think lust is wrong, we will not desire to lust after something. We will desire to be pure in heart. If we think that beating animals is wrong, then we're not going to desire to beat animals. We're going to desire to to care for God's creation. If we think any activity is wrong, we will loathe that activity. We will long for the opposite. But where does that start? It doesn't just start in what we desire. We have to be informed about what is right and what is wrong according to God's standards. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Do you see what happened? That's more than education. That's more than just learning the Bible. Through God's instruction, His God's word, the psalmist gains understanding. His thinking is changed about life, and therefore he begins to hate what is evil. Right thinking leads to right affections, which results in right living. He comes to see life and reality as God sees it. And through that new understanding, he comes to hate what is sinful. His heart has changed. And when that happens, his life will be lived differently. That's what we see in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, you'll know how to live. The question is, how do we seek this in for transformation? How do we we go after it to see it happen? Paul says two similar things earlier in Romans 8 and then Colossians 3. Let me read both of these to you. In Romans 8, he says, those who live according to the flesh, that is, live according to their sinful nature, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Then in Colossians 3, Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek at God's right hand. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. 
If God is going to change our hearts, it will begin with changing our minds. And if we're going to allow God to change our minds, we need to set our minds on the things of God. That's Paul's, that's Paul's logic there. And who am I to argue with him? But let's, let's move from preaching maybe to meddling. If the mind is the gateway to the heart, if the mind is going to be the means by which you are either being conformed and squeezed into the world or being transformed by the Spirit of God, then my question is this. Does the amount of time related that we spend thinking about maybe even completely amoral things, but nevertheless worldly things, things that are not explicitly religious and perhaps sinful, the amount of time that we spend thinking about television and sports and, and so many other things, should that, you think, be mediated by one hour on Sunday morning? Do you think if 20, 30 hours of our week are given over to thinking about these other things, do you think coming in and punching our spiritual time clock, thinking about God for an hour on Sunday morning, it'll all be okay? I won't be conformed. I'll be transformed. No. In case the math doesn't work, no. Now, am I, am I saying go throw your television out, don't play sports? I'm not saying that at all. Because if I was, I would be a big hypocrite. I, I have a television. I, I, I don't play sports as often as some of you, but I enjoy going out in the, in the yard with my kids. My point is simply to say, know what is influencing you. Think about the time you are giving over to what is shaping your thinking and therefore your desires and therefore your life. We must seek after the things of God. That for, for some of you, that means uh, reclaiming your daily commute to work. Get 30 minutes in the car. Listen to some other better preacher on the way there and on the way back. You can, you can download as many things as you want for free on the Internet. Buy a, a, a Christian book on CD or on tape or something. Do something. Listen to just the Bible on tape. Listen to something that is going to be filling your mind up with the truth of God and setting your mind on the things that are above where Christ is because that's where our life is. Some of us couldn't sing on Jordan Stormy Banks. We, we, we couldn't sing it legitimately because frankly the thought of heaven is pretty boring for us. Why? Because our minds and our hearts are so captivated in the here and now and the things of this world. Heaven is simply our get out of hell, t- our get out of hell ticket, and that's that's it. That's not what it should be. That's not what it should be. But the thought of a life with no sin of being able to perfectly obey God, to be able to see Him face to face and glory in the fullness of salvation and fellowship with Him, that should that should so captivate our minds and our hearts that anything else seems as worthless as dust and not bothering to cross the street for. But that's not where most of us live. Why? Because we have allowed ourselves to be squeezed and molded and conformed into this world. Our values are the world's values. And Paul says the way to have that changed is to first of all purpose that that's not going to happen. To be aware that that is happening and then to seek the inward transformation of the spirit by fixing our minds on the things of God. What will the result be? The result will be this. We will worship by discerning a godly lifestyle. This is the last thing we see. We will worship by discerning a godly lifestyle. Truth be told, I know very little about engineering and electrical things. I know enough to keep from ruining machinery and getting myself electrocuted. 
Although I have been shocked a couple times. Very low voltage, but unpleasant nonetheless. And I can remember back in high school when I knew even less, going into our church's gymnasium, and there's no windows, it's pitch black, and I was there early, and the youth minister said, turn the lights on so we can get ready for open gym. Okay, I flip the switches and nothing happens. I think, we got a problem. So I turn the switches back off, turn them back on, nothing happens. Turn them back off, and I say, hey, Doug, there, there's no power, there's no lights coming on. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, there's no, I turned them on and nothing happens. He goes, did you leave them on? I said, no. He says, go leave them on, they're, they're halogen lights. What's a halogen light? You turn the switch on, it comes on, right? No, that's not the way they work. There's gas in there that has to warm up, and suddenly the light begins, slowly the light comes on, and it's like, oh, I see. And all my friends are like, idiot, you know. And in that instance, I was. But here's the thing. This is, this is how our, our, our minds are supposed to work. We get saved. We don't start setting our, our, our minds on the things of God, and suddenly the entirety of our life lived as sinners is wiped out. Doesn't work that way. But like those halogen lights, slowly, over time, the Spirit of God, by the Word of God and the grace of God, has its effect of transforming our minds so that with increasing clarity, we can see before us and discern what is the will of God. That is, how we should be living as an act of worship to Him in any situation in life. With a renewed mind, we may test and discern the will of God. Paul calls it that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It is the moral direction that God has established for us. In chapter 1, Paul says that in sin, we did not see fit to acknowledge God and God gave us up to a debased mind. We're not able to discern right from wrong in the same way that we can now as Christians. God has reversed that by His Spirit. And so now we can know this is how God wants me to live. What does that mean practically? First of all, we need to understand God's will is not mysterious. As we just said, He's given us some pretty pretty clear definitions of what His will is. And if we would actually learn these things and seek to understand them, we would have more than enough information about how to live. Even verse 9 that we talked about before, let love be genuine. Or perhaps maybe an even easier one. Be holy as I am holy. That's God's will. That's his moral direction for your life. So you ask yourself, now secondly, as you seek to apply it, in this situation, what will it mean for love to be genuine? What will it mean for me to pursue holiness? What will that look like? So, so as a, a parent with children, what will it look like for my love to be genuine? As a, as a husband and wife, what will our love look like if it's genuine? As I, as I interact with a really slow checkout lady at Kroger, what will it look like for my love to be genuine in that context? Well, what will it look like when the neighbors let their dogs come into our yard and dump all over and not clean it up? What will it look like in that situation for my love for them, which I've commanded to have, what will it look like for that to be genuine? And on and on and on and on and on. Paul says that the more that we are resisting conformity to the world and are experiencing transformation from the inside out by God's Spirit, the answers to those questions will become increasingly clear to us. What does that mean? Simply this, less sin and more righteousness. Isn't that what we want as God's people? That is the goal of all true worship of God. It is crucifying ourselves in Christ and allowing the newness of life in Him to flourish. This is what, frankly, worship is not just about, but spiritual warfare on a daily basis about. 
It's about coming to God each day and saying, Oh God, there's nothing that I want more than to approve and to, to see what is most worthy and value what is most valuable and to treasure what is most precious and admire what is most beautiful and hate what is most evil and abhor what is most ugly. Therefore, I must consider myself dead to all that is unspiritual and worldly around me. And so, God, you need to do a work of renewing me. Awaken spiritual abilities to reason rightly, to see you and to love you more than sin. Take me, body and soul, and make me an instrument for your glory in this world. Let the renewal of my mind work itself out to all of my life that it might be seen on the outside. So when someone looks at my life and the use of my body, they will see one who worships and serves the living God. That, that is hard because it demands everything from us. But the reality is God has not left us to do something that he has not equipped us to do. This is why Paul says, begin with God's mercy. This is the reason why to end sin, you must worship. Someone has rightly said, you worshiped your way into that sin and you must worship your way out. Whatever your sin is. Paul says greed is idolatry. Sex is idolatry. All kinds of things could be the the, the sin that we love. The way to stop loving that sin is to love someone else more. So Paul says, you start with the mercies of God. You meditate long and hard on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we will begin to worship rightly. As the words of someone like Isaac Watts flow from our heart as well as our lips. And we will be able to say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Father, that is the prayer of our heart that we would truly be able to say that. That, God, we would worship you in a way that is fitting, in a way that is a reasonable response, God, the most logical thing in the world, considering what you have done for us through your Son. Father, I pray that every day we would be fighting the fight of faith, seeking to topple the idols that so easily infest our heart and make you the one true and living God, the King over our life, receiving the worship you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.